All right. Well, thank you guys, everyone who's joining us right now. Um, we are uh, happy to have you guys here. Um, this is our second to last uh, part of the series we've been doing um, on race in the church. And um, we're just really, it's really just kind of been a fun way to have uh, different leaders that we've been blessed to learn from over the years, um, zoom in and share what God is doing in their life and what's on their heart and um, the message that um, they're working on. And so um, for those of you who are watching, um, we have, you guys are, we're not, you, we don't have you on, on the screen. Uh, sad to not see your beautiful faces, um, but you can ask questions. So as you're listening, go ahead and put them in the chat bar. And then John and I will, at some point, we'll do Q and A and, and, uh, and do some discussion. Um, and then as always, we'll uh, in person, you know, well, I guess not in person, huh, John, but <laughs> in life together in Phoenix, we will keep fleshing, fleshing these things out uh, in the weeks, weeks and months to come. So well, welcome guys. Uh, thanks for joining. Um, Irwin is a pastor in Washington, DC area, and he wrote a book recently called The Beautiful Community, uh, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best. So Irwin, thanks. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Janae. Uh, John, good to be with you all uh, this afternoon in Washington, D.C. I know it's still uh, morning in, uh, uh, in Phoenix, but we are well into the afternoon here on the East Coast. Um, glad to uh, for this invitation. Would have loved to do it in person, but we will um, we'll be pleased to use the, what the Lord has given us here in technology. <laughs> Um, and so uh, my, my intent and desire here, I've got a presentation to work through with you, some slides that really cover kind of the, the content uh, of, uh, of my book in short form here uh, for, um, I'll go for maybe about 40, 45 minutes or so. And then we'll have some time for engaging Q&A. So as Danae said, um, <clears throat> if you, as you come up with questions, you know, um, pop them into that chat or, or q and I'm not sure which one we're going to use, but uh, so that we can kind of address them once, uh, once I'm done. All right, let me, uh, let me share my screen. And Danae and John, you can tell me if you're seeing this, uh, seeing this first side, it says the beautiful community. All right, we're good to go then. <laughs> Um, I'd like to start here with a core conviction of mine. One way of understanding what I mean by the beautiful community, or at least its pursuit, is with, uh, you know, it's a biblical term, the ministry of reconciliation that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5. And this is a core conviction that I have that's really driven me in my pastoral ministry, um, over the years from the outset around the ministry of reconciliation. And it goes like this, you can see it, the ministry of reconciliation as demonstrated in the local church by the gathering of people from diverse backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities is the natural outworking of a rich covenantal commitment. And what I mean by that is the story of redemption in the Bible from beginning to end is uh, is the story of God's covenantal commitment um, in creation, in the fall, 
in uh, salvation and redemption and in glory. And if we track that story, uh, we will see his intent for humanity to be unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ in what I call beautiful community. And we will then be pursuing it in some way, shape, or form in our local church context. Um, let me share with you a couple of um, couple of passages of scripture that I think help hone in on this in uh, from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one, verses three to ten. Uh, this this sentence, one sentence, run-on sentence in the Greek text, sentence a praise to the Lord that really sets up what he wants to say in the rest of the letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And very often in uh, reformed and evangelical circles, this passage is referenced as, uh, as a way of, uh, of speaking to the beautiful doctrine of election. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before us. He predestined us for adoption uh, to himself. But that's not Paul's primary point. He's going somewhere. He continues to say, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And here's where he's going making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So now that Christ has come, he's lived, he has been crucified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. What we now know, Paul says, is God's plan has been revealed. The mystery of his will is now known that Christ has come. And that mystery, Paul says, is one particular thing to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. And this sets the tone for the rest of the letter. So when we get to Ephesians chapter two, places we like to quote where Paul says that Christ in his body has broken down the dividing wall of hostility to make one new humanity, one new man, right? Jew and Gentile now together in the church, right? As essentially he's making the point, you're the evidence that God's plan has been revealed to unite everything in Jesus Christ. Your unity is the proof that God's plan has been revealed. He does a similar thing when he starts the letter of Colossians, chapter one, verse 15, again, this a song of praise to the Lord. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created 
through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For Paul says in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, here it is, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Different word in Colossians than he used in Ephesians 1, but it's the same point, to reconcile to himself all things on earth or in heaven. And then he says, Colossians, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's now reconciled. And these people, he will elucidate in chapter 3 and verses 11 when he says, and here, Colossians, in the church, there isn't Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. These are the diverse peoples, Paul says, he has, who have now been reconciled in one body. Right? This is the trajectory. Right? This is what has happened now that Christ has come, the apostle says, and it's rooted in some particular truths that I want to share with you. These three things, hopefully we'll get through all three of them. Uh, I can be some kind, sometimes long-winded and not stick uh, precisely to my slides and my notes, but I, it is my intention to talk about these three things in the next 30 minutes or so. One, God is beautiful community. Two, that we are destined for beautiful community as his image. And three, um, we are called to cultivate beautiful community um, in the here and now as his people. And that begs a question. Uh, I have um, over the past several years, I shared my core conviction with you about the ministry of reconciliation but it's only in the past handful of years or so, I've really just been captivated in my imagination at the concept of beauty. And that just begs the question, what is beauty, right? Um, uh, and why do I have a picture of camels uh, here on the screen to talk about beauty? Well, that's because there was a, uh, there was a scandal um, uh, in January of 2018 in Saudi Arabia at the uh, Camel Beauty Pageant. Um, and what happened was that about 12 camels or so were disqualified from the pageant uh, for receiving Botox injections and having some plastic surgery to make them appear more attractive. Uh, they, they, they caught the veterinarian who had been hired by these owners uh, to, to conform their camels to, more towards the, 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 the booklet they have on the standards of camel beauty that they use in this pageant, right? And obviously, right, the, you know, the camels didn't inject themselves, right? It was, it was these owners, right, that wanted to win prize money, and big money is awarded at these things, right? So now look, right, you and I, when I am doubtful, like I know you got some desert out there in Arizona, but it's not likely you're gonna come across any camel beauty pageants uh, out in your area, right? But we do know what it's like to commodify beauty, right? We do know what it's like to parade people across a stage in various 
uh, uh, manners of dress or undress and, and give them scores. Make a value judgment on their aesthetic appearance as a, uh, uh, in terms of their beauty. And I think that, that, that beauty is much more than that. Yes, aesthetics is involved, but it's much more than simply uh, an aesthetic uh, appearance that we can commodify. <laughs> There's a mystery and a transcendence to beauty. Uh, and a helpful way of, under, of getting at it is codified in these three Ps, perfection, proportion, and pleasure as facets of beauty. Uh, and this codification comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, actually. And uh, when he, he described beauty in its likeness to the Son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ. And he used these three words, uh, perfection, um, uh, to Steve Guthrie in his book, uh, Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human, says to hope for the kingdom of God in all its fullness is to hope for beauty. Um, the psalmist in the second verse of Psalm 50 says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. This perfection as a facet of beauty is one that um, that is transcended. It's not simply something we can codify, and it's not... Uh, the mystery here is that it is, it's a perfection that has to be able to accommodate scars. It's not the airbrush sheen of the fashion magazine where on the cover of Glamour or Muscle and Fitness, you know, you, you, you Photoshop away all of the flaws. Right? And we, can, we know this because the Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen and ascended, at the right hand of the majesty on high, he still bears the marks. He still bears the wounds in his resurrected body of his crucifixion. As we sing in that hymn, those wounds yet visible above are in beauty glorified. And so there's mystery to this aspect of perfection. But the second P is proportion, which speaks of harmony, right relationship, shalom, well-being, things being the way they ought to be as a facet of beauty. Dana Gioia says this, he says, beauty is our connection to the essential harmony of creation, right? And this reality of harmony and right ordering and proportion is true of God first. And then the third P is pleasure. Simply put, beauty delights. Um, St. Augustine said, if I were to ask first, whether things are beautiful because they give pleasure or give pleasure because they are beautiful, I have no doubt that I will be given the answer that they give pleasure because they are beautiful. Beauty delights. And the, 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 the fact of the matter is, however, this pleasure is a decentered delight in another. This pleasure as a facet of beauty is not me being at the center. It's, it's like what... Um, David says in the 27th Psalm in verse four, when he says, one thing have I asked for that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's speaking about the pleasure of being in the Lord's presence, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He's not at the center of that pleasure. 
It's delight in the Lord, right? And so this re- these three Ps help us get at a more robust understanding of what beauty is. And indeed, the Bible itself, I contend, starts with a story of beauty. The creation account in Genesis 1 is the story of beauty, perfection, proportion, and pleasure. We are given a problem statement in Genesis 1 and verse 2, that the earth is with, was without form and void. This is a declaration of a chaotic state of disorder and disharmony without form and void. And the story of creation is a story of God bringing order out of the chaos, forming and filling, forming and filling. On day one, he forms the light. Let there be light, right? And on day four, the parallel day, he fills what he formed. The, the, the sun as the light to govern the day and the moon and the stars as the light to govern the night. On day two, he forms the sky and the seas on the parallel day. Day five, he fills what he formed with inhabitants, birds, and fish. Day three, dry land and vegetation. Day six, land animals and the crown of creation, humanity, forming and filling, bringing perfection and a proportion, order out of chaos. It's the story of beauty, and there's pleasure there every day. Because every day we hear, the Bible tell us that the Lord saw what he made and he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then there was morning and evening, the day one, morning and evening, day two. And that language, that word, it was good, good is not simply about utility. It is, a, it is also a declaration of pleasure and delight. God actually delighting in the creation. That he in, in, in what he has made. And so the story of creation is a story of beauty, perfection, proportion, and pleasure. And there's another facet that runs through all three of these um, when we want to understand beauty, and that is simplicity. Right? Simplicity as a facet of beauty running through all three of those threads, perfection, proportion, and pleasure, as particularly as it relates to God. It, it is seen uh, most profoundly for us in this great confession of faith in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is known as a Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is this declaration that the Lord is one mean. It's, yes, there's one God, but it's more than that. This is a declaration about the, the unity of God, the simplicity of God, the fact that God is undivided. He has no parts. All that he is is necessary for him to be who he is. Right? If you if you Google simple living, right, you'll get all of these recommendations and to tell you, listen, do you want to live a happier life? You have to simplify. You got to declutter. Declutter your house. Declutter your mind. Declutter your relationships. Get rid of some stuff. You'll be happier. Simplicity as it relates to God is, is, can be understood this way, that he has no decluttering to do. 
There's nothing for him to get rid of. All that he is is necessary for him to be who he is. And this brings us to a particular tension point. As we understand God and as we understand ourselves, my, uh, uh, we, my wife and I have four children. Uh, the youngest is almost 16. Uh, so they're, they're grown for the most part. And uh, a second born is a professional musician. And when he was a sophomore in college, he's 24 now, he uh, had a, his first major music project, I call it, well, I say it's his first one at least, um, called I Heard God Laughing, nine songs that he wrote, this kind of mix between R&B and gospel and hip hop and jazz. And uh, the first song in that project is called The Beloved's Intro. And I want you to take a listen to this poem he wrote and how he introduces this, uh, this song as it relates to beauty and simplicity. The sky tonight has a certain elegance to her. The second great light has provided a unique kind of brightness, one through which seems to have God intentionally reaching out to his lovers. As I look up, clouds suspended in perfect bliss part and the light appears to have centered on me. The beauty of God's masterpiece had me paralyzed. It's almost as if the beloved was saying, stop and look. There was so much beauty to be found in simplicity. I thought for a moment and replied, my dear friend, as always, you are right. There is enough beauty in this one night to keep me infatuated until I meet you face to face. I could feel God crack a smile for a while longer I pondered, then I proceeded to ask, why can't life be this beautiful? Why can't life be this simple? He simply responded, Nabil, never cease to drown yourself in my love. Yeah, this one's for the beloved. stop it there because we've got more to say but of course it's streaming on all the platforms soundcloud spotify and the like um but you hear he speaks of this tension right there's so much beauty to be found in simplicity but there's a disconnect between this truth about god and our life experience why can't life be this beautiful why can't life be this simple and you see god's beauty and simplicity is seen uh, most profoundly in his Trinitarian life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God himself is beautiful community. Uh, Herman Bavink, a Dutch Reformed theologian, put it well. I'm not going to read all of this, but he said, the, the fact is that these attributes of love and knowledge, these attributes of God, as well as all the other attributes only come alive and become real as a part of, as a result of the trinity apart from it they are mere names sounds and empty terms right um, uh, only by the trinity do we begin to understand that god as he is in himself 
Hence also apart from the world is the independent, eternal, omniscient and all benevolent one, love, holiness and glory. The Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. I'm gonna show you another clip here. Well, this is your first clip. It's a movie, no, it's a show, a clip from a show. Uh, a couple minutes long, and then I'm going to finish this Herman Bobbin quote, and then I'm going to tell you why I showed you the clip. Right. So this clip is from uh, the Netflix show Last Chance You, um, which is uh, about these community colleges where uh, football players go who have potential Division One talent, but are looking for opportunity to get back into Division One program and uh, uh, potentially get to the NFL. Uh, and this is from this year's um, season, or this uh, this season's um, story from Laney College in Oakland, uh, California. So I want you to listen to what this coach and this team say, and then we'll finish the Bobbink quote. down to this last play. It must go into the end zone. Wow, what a game, Jason. I'm telling you, man. Maybe came out of nowhere. It was a real surprise. No one thought the team from Oakland had any shot. Last play. Domin is going to run. That's it. The Lady College Eagles are the 2018 state champions. Laney was one of the great stories last year. An amazing story. Laney was not a very good football program 10, 15 years ago, but Coach Beam has built a program from the ground level up. John Beam's a heck of a football coach. Tell us a little bit about the philosophy that Coach Beam has preached all season long to get you to this point. Only team that could beat us is us. He made sure that we was ready to play, but he always told us it wasn't him, it was us. Man, he's a great coach. He's a great coach. One of the best coaches I ever had. I love Coach Beam. Congratulations to the 2018 CCA State Champions, the Eagles. I didn't know what to do. I just started running like a crazy guy around the field. You know, I jumped on my DB coach, changed my direction. I ran up into the stands because I want to find my wife. I want to find my family. You do something for 40 years, something you love. I put in hours of time on the field every day with everybody else's kids. And so for me, I ran up to the field found my wife, hugged her, my daughters. And, you know, football is about family. So every year, everything starts all over again. A whole new family. Give me one. Ready, ready. Give me two. Ready, ready. Today is my 40th year starting coaching football. So I've been doing it 40 years. I'm as excited today as I was in 1979. Last year, phenomenal season. Magic ride. Those that you were there, remember that feeling when we ran, when the clock ran out, the quarterback ran, we tackled him, right, Ryan? How did it feel? Unbelievable, right, Bross? You've never done that before, have you? No. Never. No. It's great, that feeling, but you got to make it come back. All right. Let me finish the Bobbin quote and then tell you why I showed you that clip. Bobbin continues. He said, in God too, there's unity and diversity, diversity and unity. 
indeed, this order and this harmony is present in him absolutely. In the case of creatures, he said, we see only a faint analogy of it. Among us, unity exists only by attraction, by the will and the disposition of the will. It's a moral unity that's fragile and unstable. Right, here's why I showed that clip, right? That here what Coach Beam said, they won this championship, right? And he says, he said, football is about family. You've been doing 40 years. Football is about family. And he says, every year you got to start a new family. Right? He said to the team, he said, you guys have never felt that feeling before, right? Have you? It felt great. But you got to make it happen again. <laughs> you got to do it again. Right? Anytime you talk to or you hear a sports team that's won the championship and they're interviewed, right? What do they say? They'll say something like, man, we knew we were unified from the beginning. We preseason and training camp. We were all on the same page. We knew if we just stayed together and stuck to our goal that we could make it to the top. They'll say something like that, right? And the reality is that might be true, but it doesn't last to the next season, right? That unity is fragile and unstable, right? It exists by attraction because they're unified for that particular goal. This is Herman Bobbing's point. In the case, in the case of cre creatures, we don't see this absolute perfection of unity and diversity that carries through. This is our challenge because of the reality of the fall, right? And then he says, but in, in God, both are present. Absolute unity as well as absolute diversity it's one self-same being sustained by three hypostases. This results in the most perfect kind of community, a community of the same beings. At the same time, it results in the most perfect diversity, a diversity of divine persons. God is beautiful community. And we see his beauty profoundly expressed in his Trinitarian life, in his eternal beauty, <laughs> the true life, and we see it at work in the, the scriptures. I won't read these passages of scripture, but these are places where we find out that there is no um, conflict in the Trinity. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united in, in what they do and their purposes and how their plan should be executed. They support one another. They love one another. Right? Um, they glorify one another. Right? This is true of our God. And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as image? I mean, this is the first thing that the Bible says about humanity, isn't it? Right? Out of the mouth of God, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right? Um, it means fundamentally... As image, we are destined for beautiful community. We are created for and destined for beautiful community. Elaine Scarry, in her book on beauty and being just, early on in the book, she says this about beauty. She says, beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. And she's talking about the beauty in creation, but I think about our creation as human beings in this way, as beauty bringing a copy of itself into being, 
where we, God didn't create us because he somehow was in need of anything, <laughs> as he, he was somehow incomplete of experiencing love or community, right? It was an overflow of his love, an overflow of who he is, right, uh, in, in making us. And so this has some implications. It, it means for humanity, one, that we have a royal dignity as image bearers individually. It means that we, we were created for unity and diversity as human beings. And it means we have to confront the reality of our fracture and our ghettoization, our polarization as being not the way it ought to be. And it means then that we must press, particularly as the people of God, renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator in Christ, we have to pursue reconciliation and reunion in practice. So a couple of things, I'm gonna skip this real quickly. I'll push it because I already said it. I, this is a actually not a useful slide because I just said these things. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, a reinforcement of individual dignity. Humanity has a unique place in God's created world. We are creatures of incomparable value and dignity. Richard Pratt, in his book, Designed for Dignity, at a certain points asks his readers to put down his book. And he says, the next person you mean, I want you to shake his or her hand and greet them with these words, hello, your majesty. The recognition that anytime we come across another human being, regardless of age, of gender, of ability, we are, we are in the presence of royalty. Nona Werner Harrison in her book, God's Many Splendored Image, says in Genesis 1:26, the word dominion speaks of royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. Royalty involves dignity and splendor and a legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being. She says, because everyone is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means, means to be human, people are fundamentally equal, regardless of the differences in wealth, education, and social status. And then she says the church preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it now. This, this countercultural message of the royal dignity and the fundamental equality of every person, regardless of difference, was the message, the countercultural message of the people of God from the beginning. And it still is. Of course, the problem is our history in, and even present is riddled with examples of how the church has not proclaimed this countercultural message, right? Which leads to people like Dr. King in 1965 saying things like this, the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something in them with that God injected, not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations on the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant in God's keyboard precisely because everyone is made in the image of God. One day we'll learn that, he says. We'll know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This inherent 
and unimaginable dignity is actually part of the reason that God forbids idolatry. If you, it's part of the reason he forbids us from giving our worship and our devotion to anything else in all creation. So the second commandment is actually a prohibition that guards the dignity of people, not just God's dignity when he forbids us from making idols, where he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. By the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. Listen, right? Um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was no distinction between the image and the presence of the God. The carved image was understood to be the actual presence of the God. And this is, this is why God says, don't do it, right? Because he's already declared what his image is in the earth. He's already said his, it is us. So idolatry is a dehumanizing act. It dehumanizes us. <laughs> God is trying to even protect our own dignity. It, it, uh, idolatry prevents us from doing part of what we were designed to do, which is to reflect the glory of God as his image to the world. And we're prevented from doing that by when we worship idols. All right, I got to skip this next clip because I'm running out of time. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right here. I call an audible here. All right, a few more minutes. So individual dignity, but if God's beauty is seen most profoundly in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in humanity that images him. So while each person has immeasurable value and dignity because we're God's image, the most significant way we bear his image is in community. This is Herman Bobbick again, where he says the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, no matter how richly gifted that human being may be. And I would say it's too rich to be fully realized in a single ethnicity or cultural group, no matter what giftings and graces you find. He says rightly, only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head spread out over the whole earth as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. So you want to have the full picture of what it means for humanity to, be, humanity to be the image of God? Do you want to have a vision of that? You have to have glory in view. You have to have the fullness of humanity, of redeemed humanity, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, spread out over the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Glory is not us getting wings and, and uh, being up on a cloud plucking a harp, right? It's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where humanity is unified in our worship of God, right? He said, that's the fully finished image. Of course, the problem is our, 
our ghettoization, our fracture, and our polarized life. It's difficult for us to envision it because we haven't experienced it. And we have a different story that we see in humanity all over the world. And it has its roots in the biblical narrative in Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. Our ghettoization and fracture of within groups has its roots at Babel. Genesis 11.1 is the last time in the biblical record before Revelation that humanity is completely unified. Completely unified. Genesis 11.1 says, now the whole earth had one language and spoke the same words. God had reissued the creation mandate in Genesis 9-1 after the flood, after the recreation of the flood, account of the flood, Genesis 9-1, the Lord says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 11-1 says humanity had the same words, or one language and the same words, and they migrated east and and they found a, a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And humanity said to itself, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its height extending to the heavens. And he, here's, what, here's what humanity said. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed from here over the whole earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no, thank you. We're going to transgress the throne of God. We're unified in our sinful rebellion. The picture you have on the screen here is of something called a ziggurat mountain. This is, uh, this is, this is from about 2100 or so BC in, in, in Babylonian territory. There would have been a dome on the top of it, but you can see it's worn away. This approaches what the Tower of Babel may have looked like in Genesis 11. You can see, so when you read Genesis 11, don't think about some little minor project. This is humanity using our technological and architectural know-how to build ourselves, right, um, something in rebellion to, to transgress the throne of God. And so God says, look, this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, the Lord is saying, said, if we let, if I let humanity continue in its unified rebellion, <laughs> there's no bottom to the depth with which they will sink. And so God comes down in judgment and in mercy and he confuses our language. And it says that um, they stopped building the city and the tower. And it says in verses 8 and verses nine, verse 9 of Genesis 11, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. Right? And so from that point on, we get, I get, I begin to get my primary sense of what it means to be a human from my ghetto, from my people, from my tribe, from my group, whatever it is. And we love our ghettos, whether they're ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, uh, academic. And we are by nature cynical at best, hostile at worst toward those who are different. So you were going to have as a consequence of Babel, dehumanization, 
structural oppression of one group against other groups, group against group, right? Why is it that that Israel, right, the people of Israel who are the first recipients of Genesis, what is their circumstance? They had just been freed by God from slavery in Egypt. Why were they slaves in Egypt? Because they weren't Egyptian, right? And so they were not deserving of dignity as a people. This is the result of Babel, and the spirit of Babel is still with us. A couple more slides here, and then we'll stop for some Q&A time. 2007, an artist named Doris Salcedo um, made a, a, a work of art she contributed to the Tate Modern Museum in Britain. Uh, it's, the picture is here. She titled the piece Shibboleth. And her contribution to uh, the museum was to literally crack open the floor of the museum. So that's not a picture. Well, it's a picture, but it's a literal crack opening of the floor. She titled the piece Shibboleth as a reference to Judges chapter 12 in the Bible when the Gileadites, they sifted out their enemies by giving a boundary test. If you came into the territory, you had to pronounce the word Shibboleth and it sounded different in different dialects. And if you didn't pronounce it with the right accent, it became a death sentence. And so it's a, right, it means this word now, uh, a phrase or a custom or a use of language that acts like a test of belonging to a particular group. In other words, it's an exclusionary tool. And her, her, her work of art in cracking open the floor was her effort to make visible the hidden ways in which we police our boundaries. Right? The she says the impossible tests that we give others in order to maintain our own sense of security and comfort in our group. The impossible tests of belonging we give to others just to maintain our own sense of comfort and security. Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebrock in uh, 2018 gave the commencement address at um, uh, Covenant College graduation and she used this art a piece of art as um, as uh, as an image to make a drive home a point in her in her message, and she said this: Sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group suffering or accounting of history, then there's less available for us. But this is foolish, she said. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness, she said, doesn't diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it. And because of our ghettoization, we have reinforced behaviors and ideas that create cross-cultural barriers to us living into beautiful community. Last couple of slides here, and then we'll stop. Um, before I read Jesus's words here in John 17, understand God's response to Genesis 11 
is Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham. Genesis 11, the dispersion of peoples across the earth, different languages and creating different customs now, right? It could only be reversed by God's promise. So he calls Abraham and he makes Abraham a promise, right? He says, right, um, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless whoever blesses you and whoever dishonors you, I'm going to curse. And he says, Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a promise of reunion and reconciliation in the seed of Abraham that could only happen because um, if God does it, because the only thing we can create is unity and rebellion and sin, right? And so God has to bring us back together by promise. And so Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he begins to pray, not simply for his disciples who followed him in his earthly ministry, but in verse 20, he prays to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, brothers and sisters. In his prayers, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you loved them, even as you have loved me. They may be one, one, perfectly one, over and over and over again, Jesus says. And he's not pulling this idea off the top of his head. The Lord has the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 on his mind in this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. His prayer to the Father is that our unity as his people would reflect the oneness, the unity that he has shared with the Father from eternity past, that we would image him as his people, that we would image God in this unity. And make no mistake, it is unity in diversity. And we understand, of course, right, that the Father is going to answer the Son's prayer. The question is, are we on board with it? Are we going to pursue it? You see, what the fall destroyed was union and unity with God and with each other. And reunion is the story of scripture. The words that we find in the Bible, renewed and reconciled and united, they are the reversal of the fractures and the divides and the breaks and the partitions of life that this world and uh, in this in this world and before God that was and is so desperately needed. We are truly stamped from the beginning for beautiful community. We are created by God for unity and union, wholeness and shalom. This is God's design and desire and intent. All right, I'll stop there. Um, I told you I kind of go. Wow. <laughs> you could keep going. Thank you so much. That was, yeah. Go, go for it, John. 
I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely, that was good. That was good. I, I appreciate it. Um, the kind of the breakdown, breakdown as of God is a beautiful community and then how we're destined uh, for beautiful community, primarily because we're uh, creating an image and likeness of God. And I think that's just a good reminder for us to constantly always be thinking through, always be constantly reminded by. So I appreciate that, brother. Uh, so appreciate, yeah, appreciate your presentation. Uh, at this time, what we want to do is just kind of open it up for some Q&A and, you know, you can uh, answer some questions because you're in a hot seat right now. I'm on, so I'm on the hot seat. Come you're on. in the hot seat, Doc. You're in the hot seat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thankfully, look, thankfully, I don't have any hair. So I don't have any hair dye like Giuliani to be sweating. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, well, yeah, this should be a question. You know, I didn't get to that that last section really fully you know, about cultivating beautiful community, kind of the how and what are the things we ought to be considering doing in this. So I'd be happy to engage in that as well. Uh, Absolutely. With question. Absolutely. Uh, well, first question, um, and, and for those who participants put it um, in the chat and then we can, um, I can, I can uh, ask, ask them to Dr. Irwin. First one being though, um, yeah, just kind of explain a little bit. What was your what was your what was your heartbeat um, behind writing this this book? What was the heartbeat behind it? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. I, um, yeah, I hadn't set out in my ministry to say, oh, one day I'll write a book <laughs> um, about it. Uh, but it really is, a, I think, a, it's a process that uh, that happened after, as I was doing my Doctor of Ministry degree. And I did my, um, my dissertation on identity formation in diverse churches. And I had uh, done a, uh, had interviewed a lot of folks from a variety of, uh, of diverse churches uh, in various parts of the country and hearing stories and kind of um, crafting it to, to this dissertation. And that's really what was the spark for me saying, you know, I wasn't really interested in turning my dissertation into a book because dissertations are not, you know, want to just, you know, publish those, right? But it did kind of lead like this spark in me to say, maybe I can be a service to the church. Um, there's so much here to share. I, and, and we need to understand as the people of God that the pursuit of unity and diversity, talk of racial reconciliation in the United States, talking about redemptive ethnic unity, as my brother Lance Lewis uh, likes to, to put it, is not an add-on to the gospel message. Mm. It is at the heart of the gospel message. That's there's, good. That's no, good. there's no Christian life without reconciliation, right? We reconcile with God. Right? And the evidence and the demonstration of our reconciliation to to one another is a gospel witness to the world. I mean, that's what Jesus said in John seventeen, mm -hmm. so that the world may believe that you sent me. Right? Our unity is gospel witness. Jesus said. Right. That's and good. so that was so really wanting to kind of codify it, put that out uh, as a way of encouraging folks who are pursuing 
unity and diversity in the local church, pursuing loving neighbors across lines of difference to say, you're not crazy. You know, you're, you're not the ones that don't get the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's good. Um, another question. Um, why do you think it may be challenging for some predominantly white congregations to truly embrace diversity and not merely just assimilation? Mm -hmm. So let me repeat the question again, because uh, there's a couple different parts to it. Um, in light of everything that you're saying regarding the beautiful community, um, why do you think it may be challenging for some predominantly white congregations, predominantly white churches, to truly embrace diversity and not merely just assimilation. Yeah. So um, assimilation is is easy. Assimilation mm. just it, it, and it is it's easy and it is <clears throat> there's an arrogance there that may not be understood as arrogance, but it's essentially this is what it means to be a christian we we've got it we understand it so you just we we don't we we want different people coming and being a part of this church but but the message is you just got to become like us right mm -hmm. um and then think then everything is wonderful true unity and diversity true cross-cultural missional life and love is hard. It's impossible, actually, apart from the Spirit of God mm. doing the work. And it means for my brothers and sisters, my white brothers and sisters who are in majority white, particularly evangelical space, right? It, it means I need to reckon with some truths about how we got to to this point. Mm, okay. It means you have to you have to reckon with it did not happen by accident that you're a majority white church that that the church in the United States of America is segregated based on race and class primarily. That's not an accident. Mm. It it happened because of decisions because of right Remember that quote I gave by Nona Ver Verna Harrison that this was the that that people are fundamentally equal regardless of differences in race, wealth, social status, education, ability, or disability. And she said the church preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it today. Well, if you look at the United States, you might wonder: Did the church really preach that countercultural message? of the fundamental equality and royal dignity of everybody. And so it's hard, right? It's hard to, to reckon with that and come into a position, particularly if you're part of a majority culture context and have been used to being majority culture, meaning you get to dictate norms. Mm to say, we have to come at this as a, in a learner position. <laughs> that we have to realize that actually we're at a deficit because we don't have the experience of, of cultural and ethnic 
diversity embodied in our congregation and we need to to learn from others yeah right that's a harder journey to take yeah absolutely and a lot of what you're saying as well um which i appreciate is you're almost making it you're saying that history actually matters you know the, the historical um which some people um are not really history buffs, to, right. for lack of better words. Um, but you're saying like you actually have to reckon with and go back and, and understand history to a degree in order for you to be able to have this reconciliation. Um, let, me, posture. let me give you an example before we move to the next question, a practical example that, sure. uh, that that's true to the so I'm my, uh, my mother's side of my family is from Wilmington, North Carolina. Right. I grew up in New York City because uh, my mother, my grandmother particularly, and then all of her children were part of that great American migration, the mass exodus of Black Americans out of the Southern states post-Reconstruction from the late 1890s all the way to 1970. Right. My mother left, my grandmother left for Harlem in 1947. My mother followed as a teenager in 1952. So that's why I'm a New Yorker, right? Um, in 1898, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, or in the 1890s, I should say, was uh, the most populous city in the state of North Carolina. It was 56% Black by population. Almost half of the 26 police officers in the city were Black. You had a Black Alderman, you had black elected officials in the city, you had a growing black middle class, you had a thriving black newspaper called The Record, right? Um, it, it was becoming a post Civil War model for black white cooperation. This was intolerable to the white supremacists in North Carolina. They launched what they literally called the white supremacy campaign oh. and, and went on a months long plan to take over the city. And they did. They, right. We talk about fake news. If you re, there's a book called Wilmington's lie, right. That gives you a story. Mm. Fake news. They use their own newspaper. Right. And, um, um, and launched a fake news campaign, trumping up stories, about you know blacks raping white women, doing the whole kind of deal, and an armed hostile takeover of the city government on election day. Right, there were more votes cast on the November election day in Wilmington, North Carolina, than there were people in the city. Right, forced the mayor to step down, and then went on a bloody ramp. Uh, a mob gathered, went on a bloody rampage, killing hundreds of black citizens. So, okay, that's 1898. My grandmother is born in 1916, right? 18 years after the coup. My mother is born in 1936, 37 rather, right? That set a trajectory for the city of Wilmington. That's why my, my grandmother had to leave. That's why my mother, when I interviewed her, you know, before she, years before she died, uh, uh, said, said, I knew there was no opportunity for me in Wilmington. I had to leave. Today, mm -hmm. Wilmington, North Carolina is 18% Black. 
Okay. It was 56% black in 1898. Today in 2020, it is 18% black. I met with earlier this year before the COVID shutdown, uh, I, I did a ministry trip to Wilmington, met with a diverse group of, of, of pastors and ministry leaders who are trying to pursue reconciliation and start to model it for the church in that city. And they know we have to deal with this history. It still casts a shadow on our city. We can't move forward without confronting it and being open about the wound that it caused and the distrust that it set 120 years later, right? So that's what I mean. History matters, right, to your point. And that's a real-life example of how it has an impact today on a real-life city in a real-life state with real-life churches trying to do this work. Yeah, that's good. That's so good, Erwin. I I love when you talk about it, only the spirit of God can do this. And um, the reality that this, you know, a lot of times when people talk about trying to do multi-ethnic church or, you know, move a team into greater diversity, um, I'll hear people say, you know, it's so hard, right? And it's like, no, it's not only hard to your point, it's impossible. Only Christ can do it. And I love this. I just love that you're bringing out and emphasizing the beauty because I, I, I think, especially in 2020, when there has been, um, and probably the last four or five years, there's been a lot of relational fallout and pain from not actually getting to the repentance piece that can allow us to experience reconciliation. But there is something really beautiful and mysterious when people groups or people can come together and have this moment of repentance and repair individually and then it's hard to almost even imagine it corporately Um, but I'm just curious to hear what as you've as you've been ministering and this is such a big part of your ministry in DC what is some of the yeah there's the on on the one side there's a challenge but then there's this break these breakthrough moments where you get to taste it's like heaven it's heaven on earth right it's like nothing like it and so it's hard to explain to people the the beauty and the mystery it's like it makes it all worth it but give us some examples of how you've experienced that in your context. Yeah. Um, I, so a couple of examples. The church that I that we planted and I pastored for 10 years before I moved into uh, D.C. to come on staff at Grace D.C., uh, much of our diversity, uh, you know, you plant a church and you're like, oh, we're going to be a cross-cultural church and you have this vision in mind, but you don't know how it's going to work out, right? Um, it turns out most of the Black um, congregants at our church were uh, second generation uh, West African uh, immigrants, who, mostly from Ghana, some Togo and Nigeria and younger people. And um, we, um, you know, a couple of them, the young men served as pastoral interns with me. Um, and uh, And one of them just had a heart for uh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, right? And uh, and he, this particular, this brother in particular is Nigerian, and um, we worked through this process. He was going to do do this um, this series. We're going to take a year and do. I forget. I think we were calling it Christianity in the African context or something like that. Um, and it was. Uh, engaging with um, how the Christian faith looked and was experienced in various 
um, connections in West African, in particular, cultural context. And so he said, this is an, he wanted to expand and invite his fellow African sisters and brothers into these conversations, right? And, um, and covering issues like immigration and marriage, right? Spirituality and looking at positive aspects of African culture, right? Things that, right, that the gospel would confront. And we told, uh, you know, we said to our, uh, our, our white brothers and sisters and even the African-American brothers and sisters, yes, everybody's invited. But y'all ain't here to ask questions, okay? <laughs> this is a this is a learning experience <laughs> for y'all, right? Um, you, you get to kind of listen in and understand and see, right? And that and creating that those opportunities and fostering that level of understanding and seeing the beauty, right, in this other cultural context. Those are experiences that, right, that you're not going to get. There's a, not just experiences, there's a joy that you're not going to experience. Yeah. Right? If you're yeah. only mono. Yeah. It's like, and it just even the picture you gave of um, the image, us being the image of God, there's just a part of Jesus that we don't get to see. We don't encounter exactly, him and the other. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yes. Hey, Dr. Irwin, that, about the women, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, mm-hmm. those group, those group of uh, uh, North Carolina pastors, um, mm-hmm. was were they uh, a diverse group? Yes. Um, seeking the rest of they were okay. They were diverse. Yeah, they, were, they were racially diverse, denominationally diverse. Okay, so they started meeting as pastors and ministry leaders. Matter of fact, it was a uh, the pastor who invited me down is a part of this group. Uh, his church is is almost i'm in the pca his church is 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 almost like is it would be pca but he's not in the pca so it's right that's it uh and, and it's majority white the 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 conversation we had with the meeting with his pastors was was at an ame church so you've got the you know um non-denominational baptist ame right um pastors and ministry leaders they're tr- trying to have this conversation around pursuing greater unity as the people of God in that city, right? And having to deal with the reality of the history that has got them to that point. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, again, guys, go ahead and feel free to type some uh, questions in the Q&A uh, chat here. I asked a couple more um, as well. Next one we have here, um, Dr. Irwin, beyond what may uh, be described as a theological uh, mandate to be in community, what are the most important reasons we should actively seek out being a part of a multi-ethnic, multi-class congregation? Yeah. So let me say uh, a couple of things. First, um, it I would say, one, I wouldn't necessarily go beyond that. Like, like it has to be rooted in a conviction. This is that this is a gospel pursuit. So right, it can't be rooted in anything other than that, um, or we won't persevere in it because it's too hard. Uh, as we said, right, it's impossible to do apart from the Spirit of God at work. Right. 
Um, and so, so that is the most important reason <laughs> that is, that, that this is the, this is the mandate um, of living out the gospel. Now, of course, so, so if I'm in a community that is more mono-ethnic or mono-racial, I'm going to expect that the church is going to reflect that right community in its in its in its demographic makeup. I'm still going to I would still say the church has to be on looking out for what's what are where, where are the fractures then and the divides and the brokenness that the gospel can heal that we have to pr- press into. Um, and so the what we the other part the other aspect of this is what we were just talking about recognizing um the the beauty of and the joy of being a part of of beautiful community like like in when you experience it yes there are difficulties but there's just a sense of joy in appreciating, right? Um, God's creative genius <laughs> in our diversity and manifesting in community where we love one another well, where we share one another, where we grow, where we recognize experientially what it means that God is just, that salvation is not just about a new me, it's about a new we. <laughs> right, a new us, and experiencing that, right, and, and even, and even saying, and even see, seeing, for example, um, uh, you know, let's take James, the, the book of James, letter of James, for example, right, with, with James, will, um, right, he's railing, he's mad, because he's railing against how the church is, is um, is making these distinctions between the poor and the rich, so the sin of partiality. They're being partial to the rich and they're mistreating the poor. And he, and he says in that first chapter to set it up, he says, let the rich boast in their exalt, in their humiliation, let the poor boast in their exaltation. That now in Christ, there's a different economy the world says, you rich people, you're everything and you're all that in a bag of chips. You're, everybody wants to be around you and know you and, right? And it's the, the poor people, the world says, you are worthless, you can be discarded. He says, no, in Christ, is a different economy. The rich need to understand, no, you're not all, all that the world is saying you are, right? You need to boast in your humiliation in Jesus Christ. Poor, you need to be understand you are you are royalty right you are valuable incomparable dignity right in christ but the two are connected because they're in the same church the point he's i think he's driving home is that the how do the rich boast in their humiliation by coming alongside and helping the poor boast in their exaltation by promoting their cause, by by um, by using stewarding their resources for the blessing and benefit of those poor with, who are without resources, right? So this, this being together in community is necessary even for stewarding what God has given us. Well, 
That's good. That's good. We got two. We got two more questions, and then we'll 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 be done uh, at least for for today. Uh, it's been super helpful having you on and just breaking down all this stuff to us. Um, one one question. Next to last question. Um, how does a mon monolithic, excuse me, cultural community look for these fra fractures that you that you mentioned? Uh, in other words, what are the questions uh, should this monolithic community be asking mm -hmm. for the fractures? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So one one way to get about this that is available is is actually get. You know, well, of course, we'll be praying for the Lord to show it to us, right? But um, looking, getting demographic studies, right? L who are our neighbors? Literally, what? Right? You, wow. you can get demographic studies for whatever your parish is, right? And you can you can see, you know, average uh, academic, you know, education level, um, different. Um, um, Factors like um, a household income, right? All right, all of these categories that that you can say, okay, well, um, who's here, and what what divisions might there be, right? Um, and then we, you know, part of the question becomes, who who do we know of our neighbors, <laughs> right? Who's literally in my neighborhood, in our neighborhoods, right? That we have relationships with, right? Um, and and help and asking the Lord to help us expose what those divides are, because I guarantee they're there. Again, as I said, we specialize in division in human since Babel. That's that's our specialty. We we can we can create we can create fractures out of almost anything. Right. And so I guarantee you that they're there, even in more monocultural or monoethnic communities. Yeah, that's good. Well, this would be the last question um, for you. You spent some time in uh, New York, you did your undergrad in, in New York, one of the senior mm -hmm. schools, I believe. Um, are, you a, are you a New York Knicks fan? Man, okay, let me take my glasses off here. Oh, gosh. I grew up a, a Knicks fan. I did. <laughs> I am much more of a football fan. So I'm a New York Giants guy and baseball, okay. New York Yankees guy. Okay. Have been so disappointing to me. They've been terrible. I mean, Nolan's owners, like I've, I've been wanting to disown them um, <laughs> for at least 10 years. And now that it's the now, no, the Nets came to Brooklyn after I left, you know, and mm -hmm. so but it's downtown Brooklyn, you know, across the street from the church I grew up in is where the, you know, the Barclay Center is. So I want to claim the Nets, but I haven't lived in New York to claim mm, them okay. as my rooting interest. So, sort of, I'm <laughs> sorta. I got you. Sorry, that's All the right. best I can do. It gives me heartburn to think about cheering for the Knicks these days. <laughs> Absolutely.
Well, we'll, we'll pray. Well, let me, uh, thank, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. yeah thanks good. so much. Great to be with yeah. you, brother. It's been really good helpful. You. All too. Yeah. They're really helpful. Pick up the book. Yeah. Um, and you know, do a book club, small group. I'm sure it'd be extremely helpful. Let me pray for you, Dr. Irwin, you and your family and your ministry in DC and beyond and we'll be done. Okay. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for this day. Thank you for Dr. Irwin. Thank you for um, his book, his writing, his ministry. Um, yeah, I just pray for his family as well, Lord, that you would continue to keep them in your grace um, and that this book would be extremely helpful for anyone that's looking to think about, uh, you know, diversity and, and, and unity and racial reconciliation, ethnic harmony, Lord. I just pray that this book would be extremely helpful in all the ways that uh, we see fit, that you see fit as well, Lord. So all these things we ask and we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, everyone. Great to Thank be with you, you guys. Have a great day. All right. God bless. Bye-bye.